I want to invite you again tonight to turn to Galatians chapter 5. We're going to conclude our focus in the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5 and verse 22 and 23. And the message tonight is entitled, Pray for Gentleness and Self-Control. We're going to couple these last two in this part of the scripture where it says, but the fruit of the Spirit is, and the last part is gentleness and self-control. Now you'll remember, because most of you have been here through this study, uh, we turned our attention toward the fruit of the Spirit as it relates to how we pray and the things that we're praying for to be a reality in our lives. We're going to continue on with an emphasis on prayer, especially the week after, or the week, I should say, leading up uh, or after, I should say, uh, Easter, uh, we're going to continue on in our focus on prayer in the midweek, and that's going to take us on for a number of weeks more, but we're just concluding this portion of it as it relates to the fruit of the Spirit. Now, one of the things that we've emphasized as we've gone through this is that the fruit of the Spirit comes from abiding in Christ. When we are abiding in Christ, we are remaining in Him we are drawing from him, communing with him, then the Holy Spirit progressively conforms us so that we are more and more like Jesus. And it's the Holy Spirit who produces spiritual fruit in your life when you submit to the power of God. So this fruit is not produced by your own strength. It's produced by abiding in Christ, yielding yourself to the Holy Spirit, and then fruit is a result of growth. It's the characteristics or the qualities that God produces in your life as you yield to him and as you grow in maturity in Christ. We've already covered love, joy, peace, long-suffering or patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. And now tonight we come to gentleness and self-control. So let's focus first on what it means to pray for gentleness. What does it mean to pray for gentleness? Well, gentleness is often thought of as weakness. And you'll remember uh, some time ago, we went through an entire study on the emphasis of the fact that Jesus is gentle and lowly. That's how he describes himself. And this is an emphasis on that particular focus again. And biblically, gentleness is strength under control. Uh, gentleness comes from having a Godward focus of surrender and then having a human focus of consideration of others. So in other words, it's your posture toward God as you humble yourself before him. You see yourself in a proper focus of who he is and who you are. And then as you emphasize that as you act toward other people in your consideration for other people. Now, where does this gentleness come from? Well, it's part of the nature of God. God's the one who heals the brokenhearted and binds up the wounded. When Jesus describes himself as being gentle and lowly in heart, um, it's at the same time our understanding that he is the one who upholds the universe by the word of his power. So if you think about Jesus and his eternal power, his eternal being, his eternal nature, and then the fact that when he came into the world that he described himself as being gentle and lowly, you can see how this is strength under control. This is an emphasis on what God does by his power 
but then how God acts according to his character. In 1839, George Washington Bethune, a Dutch Reformed pastor at the time in the United States, said, perhaps no grace is less prayed for or less cultivated than gentleness. It's just not a popular subject. We are in a very aggressive moment in culture. Uh, People are angry about so many things, and they're just aggressive about what they think ought to happen and how they think they ought to get their way. And it's a very interesting time to be alive. And to act differently from that is to be countercultural, but it's to be consistent biblically. And we want to live our lives in a countercultural way, but we want to live our lives in a way that is consistent with the Bible. Now, a verse in the scripture from the Beatitudes tracks along with this idea of gentleness. And I want to talk about how gentleness and meekness come together and how they're essentially the same thing with a little bit of nuance. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 5 says, Blessed are the meek, uh, some translations actually translate it as gentle, uh, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are the lowly in heart, for they will inherit the earth. Now, you know the Beatitudes. Uh, You've heard of time and again, if you've been in church any time at all. The Beatitudes are eight statements of blessedness, and they're spoken by Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is a broader context of what Jesus was teaching, but but the Beatitudes are at the heart of it in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 3 through 12. And each of the eight Beatitudes begin with the words, blessed are. Now, one of the things that stands out about the Beatitudes is that the Beatitudes are characteristics of citizens of the kingdom of God. And they are countercultural, but at the same time, they're consistent with what Jesus would want us to do and how he would want us to live. And part of the difficulty in the translation of meek or gentle is that there's not a single word in the English language that fully captures the full meaning of what this is. It was a word that was used then, a concept that was used to speak of a medicine or a salve that might be soothing for a particular type of illness or a soft breeze that might be blowing gently or perhaps a a trained animal that had not been broken but was broken and became power under control. The idea of being blessed means happy or in a state of bliss. Uh, It's a state of spiritual well-being and prosperity. So when we think about biblical blessing and biblical happiness, it goes along with the idea of a deep joy in your soul. So we think about what it means to be gentle. We understand that gentleness begins in the very depths of our being because of what the Spirit of God is doing through us. Now, this, this does not mean that the meek or the gentle person is passive necessarily, although the situation might call for that. It doesn't mean that the meek or the gentle person is going to be easily pushed around. That's not what it means. But it does mean strength under control. It means to demonstrate a willingness to submit and to work under proper authority. And when the scripture says that the meek or the gentle will inherit the earth, the ultimate blessing will be from God, and it won't just be a temporal blessing, it will be an eternal blessing. Now, there's all sorts of concepts wrapped up in the Sermon on the Mount and in other teachings of Jesus 
that really are flipped from what our culture would teach would be expected. Uh, the last will be first, and the first will be last. And there's all sorts of ideas that are, that are totally different from what the world's going to tell you you should live as and the things that, that uh, you should be doing. So I want us to note here that as we pray for gentleness, the gentle are under the control of God. The gentle are under the control of God. Now, as already noted, the word was used by way of illustration to speak of an animal. Uh, and, and specifically of a beast of burden, or, or a horse is the common illustration that you'll hear. Um, and that horse or that animal was not broken, but it was trained by its master, and the animal was put in a position where it could be useful uh, and be serviceable because it was power under control. Now, this same thing is true of us spiritually. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. We are rebels at heart. Our default uh, mode in our sin nature is to do whatever we want to do. I mean, that's the attitude that, that we have to, to make our own way. But sometimes, even as Christians, that can seep into our thinking. We have this uh, ideal that we have in our minds that we're going to be a, a renegade or we're going to do it our way or we're going to rebel against the system or whatever the case might be. And if we're not careful, that can deeply affect us spiritually because that affects how we think about our relationship with God. But when you submit to Jesus as Lord, then God teaches you to fully trust in him. He teaches you what surrender is all about. Now think about the life of Abraham. Abraham believed God and when he first began to follow him, he left his home and he went to the land that God had called him to. But you'll remember that he brought his father and his nephew and tarried for many years until his father died. And Abraham's obedience was a work in progress. So tonight when I'm speaking to you about gentleness and the concept of really growing in the likeness of Jesus, we're not Jesus, but we have the Holy Spirit in us and our obedience and our meekness, our gentleness also is going to be a work in progress. And we see that in several places in the scripture and examples of people that, that God was bringing them along, but it was sometimes with struggle. It was sometimes where they had to learn lessons the hard way and they did things that God was not pleased with and they suffered the consequences of what they did. And then God was still patient and merciful and brought them to where he wanted them to be. So we want to be a people who are under the control of God. Listen to what Psalm 32 and verse 8 and 9 says. It says, I will instruct and teach you about how you should live. I will advise you as I look you in the eye. Do not be like an unintelligent horse or mule, which will not obey you unless they are controlled by a bridle and bit. I wonder if God looks at us sometimes and thinks, well, they're just like a hard-headed horse. They're just like a, they're like a mule. And I know I've been like a mule many times in my life. And I suspect many of you have been as well. But also the gentle respond to personal offense by trusting judgment, entrusting judgment to God. Now I want to take this a step further because now we're thinking about our surrender to God. We're thinking about the whole idea of abiding, uh, the fruit being produced in us. But now what does this look like practically when things don't go your way in relationships with others. Um, now, 
Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount also uh, the, the idea, the contrast between an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And he talked about the importance of being willing to turn the other cheek and so on. Um, that's the kind of person that the world uh, would call weak. But in reality, that also is power under control. Now, you see all kinds of things on social media, but I saw this uh, video the other day of a man that was on the subway, and he had his wife and, and young children with him, and things went very poorly. I don't know what happened, but the guy that was on the subway with them was very aggressive, very violent. He was trying to draw the father into an altercation, and, and it was just a dangerous situation all the way around. Well, the world would tell you that that father in that moment should have stood up and engaged and defended the family in that moment, but there was nothing that was actually physically happening to them. The guy was just talking, and you could see that it was escalating. You could see that it was, it was going to become something that could potentially be deadly if, uh, if he did engage. And he just, he just held his ground, and he was able to power through it, and then when it got to the right place, they were able to get out of the situation, and his family was uh, taken to safety. That was an example to me of gentleness or meekness that was power under control because he could have made a much worse situation. And you think about the different times in, in life where we get offended or something happens that doesn't go our way and our immediate response is to escalate it. Our immediate response is to, to defend our honor in that moment or to do whatever we think we need to do to fight fire with fire. And a lot of times the best situation is to try to de-escalate it and you're actually in a greater position of strength because you're not putting yourself in unnecessary harm's way uh, in that particular moment. And that's not a weak person. That's a person who has power, has power under control. Um, I think also about the life of Joseph and how he demonstrated uh, this and how he responded to his brothers. I mean, what would our first response be to our own brothers who had sold us into slavery. And you remember after their father died that they basically threw themselves before Joseph, uh, declaring that they were his servants and, and they pled for mercy. And you remember what Joseph's response was? He said, don't be afraid. He said, am I in the place of God? That's, a, that's an interesting phrase that we could do a lot, uh, much longer study on here tonight. But he asked that question, Am I, in Genesis 15, verse 19, am I in the place of God? Now, we don't think about it in those terms, but if we try to take control of a situation to get to the outcome that we want it to be at, rather than entrusting ourselves to the judgment of God and what he's going to do in it, then we are essentially putting ourselves in his place. And he said, you planned evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about the present result, the survival of many people. And he showed by his example, this was a man who had all the power he needed. I mean, he could have put the smack down on them and, and made them suffer for what they had done. But he entrusted himself to God the Father, and God the Father would eventually, of course, take care of the circumstance. Paul taught the same thing. He said in Romans 12 and verse 19, Friends, do not avenge yourselves. Instead, leave room for God's wrath because it is written, vengeance belongs to me, I will repay. That's not my first response. Hey, I think I'll just leave room for God's wrath. That's, that's not my first response a lot of times. And I have to remember, okay, I've got to surrender to the Spirit in this situation. 
and entrust that God is going to work this out uh, to his purpose and he's going to make things right and handle the situation. Jesus, of course, is the ultimate example of this uh, in his life. Uh, A scripture that has always been quite meaningful to me, especially in times of of, um, difficulty, is the example of Jesus in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 22 and 23. And here's what it says. He did not commit sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When he was insulted, he did not insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. If Jesus Christ, the eternal son of God, manifested in the flesh, could come to this world and suffer as he did. We're about to uh, emphasize that and celebrate that this next week and into the Easter Sunday. If he can entrust himself to the one who judges justly, then who do I think I am that I can't do that? Who do you think you are that you can't do that? It's a reminder to us all that the gentle will respond to personal offense by entrusting judgment to God. And then the gentle will have righteous indignation toward those who dishonor God. This is not contradictory to these other two ideas. Righteous anger is a virtue. The Bible is clear that God is a righteous judge and he's a God who shows wrath every day, is what Psalm 7 and verse 11 says. Um, In Numbers 12, Moses is referred to as the meekest man in all the earth. And you remember when his sister and his brother were angry at him for marrying the Ethiopian woman, he said, and he did nothing basically was his response. Uh, God defended him and God actually made Miriam leprous in the moment. And what did Moses do? He pled for her and asked God to heal her. This is a man who was meek and who was gentle in that moment. Now, obviously, when um, he uh, defended himself and his people on another occasion, he, he didn't act in that manner. Uh, but even so, as a servant of God, his pattern of maturity and growth as he moved along was that he continually pleaded on behalf of the people to God that God would work in their lives even when he was not pleased with what he saw. You remember when Israel sinned against God by worshiping the golden calf? Moses didn't come down from the mountain and say, no, no, that's all right. I understand. Y'all just wanted to worship and you just got mixed up. No, that's not what he did. He got fired up and he he took those tablets, the stone tablets that had the Ten Commandments written on them, and he smashed them. Why did he do that? Not out of his own anger. It was out of a righteous indignation because he saw that the people were dishonoring God. It was an offense against the holy God. So even when we entrust ourselves or the situation to the one who judges justly, we can still have righteous indignation about wrongs that are done. Right's right and, and, and wrong is wrong. Jesus demonstrated this same type of mentality. No, he didn't retaliate in the way that he could have when he submitted himself to the will of the Father. But he very plainly called the Pharisees serpents. He referred to them as as whitewashed tombs. He went to the temple with a whip and he drove out the money changers who were cheating people and dishonoring God. So to say that 
we are power under control and meekness and gentleness, it is not contradictory to also say that we have righteous indignation when things are wrong. But the question is, what do we do with it? We try to take it into our own hands and we try to retaliate or we try to get vengeance or we try to get revenge in the situation or do we understand the offense that has been made against God and then ultimately still entrust that God is going to do something about it to set it right? Uh, William Barclay said, Blessed are those who are always angry at the right time and never angry at the wrong time. Now, that's a tall order um, because I'm angry at the wrong time sometimes, and I know you are as well. But the pattern of our lives, what is it? Are we growing in our ability to understand when it's the right time to have righteous indignation and to be angry about something that's wrong and when it's the wrong time to do that? Um, And I think we're all works in progress in that. So in summary, gentleness has to do with your inner disposition and your outward behavior. So let's think about it this way. If you see somebody that's got a short fuse and is always quick to get angry, quick to criticize, quick to complain, all things that go along with that short fuse, what that tells you is there's something already going on in their heart. It's not, this is not just happening in the moment. Now, anybody, anybody can have something hit them wrong in the moment. I mean, occasionally, when I think that I've really made good spiritual progress and overcome uh, this issue in my own life, something will hit me just right, and uh, then I end up having to repent for it because it just, in the moment, it just hit me right, and it just, it just fired me up, and, 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 and I had to get it under control. I asked the Lord to help me do that. But I'm talking about as a pattern. Are you quick to pop off at your kids? Are you quick to be short with the people that you work with? Are you quick to be angry with the person when you're trying to get some help at a place of business? Are you always complaining and critical and and acting in a way that's not honoring toward God or good for your own testimony? Uh, Paul said to the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians 10 and verse 1, he said, I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. He said, look to Jesus. Now, here are some tests of gentleness that I want to suggest uh, that might be helpful to you to really think through this and how to apply it. Uh, Do I submit myself to God's word? And do I have in that a teachable spirit? A lot of times the people that are the least gentle and the least meek are also the least teachable. Why? Pride. That's why. It's a simple answer. Pride. What can you teach me? Why should I listen to you? I don't want to hear that. I already know it all. Why should you correct me? And we don't have a teachable spirit. But I'm going to tell you, if you will stay in the Word consistently, the Spirit of God will shape your life And not a day will go by when something that you read won't stand out to you. Either that God's doing in your life and you're growing in already. Or something that you need to be corrected in and need to grow in. And the Lord will help you with it. And then how do I respond when I'm offended? This goes back to the whole pride issue. Uh, Do I have righteous indignation when God is dishonored? Do, Do I care when... Uh, people do things that are just an affront to God. 
Am I kind in my dealings with others? Am I kind in my dealings with others? And am I growing in my compassion and consideration? Am I growing in my compassion and consideration? May we make this our prayer. Holy Spirit, as you dwell in me, make me fruitful in gentleness according to your power at work in my life. And do it for me and do it for our church. Then the second area is to pray for self-control. What is self-control? It's the ability to regulate your personal life so it's not driven by the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Those are passion, pleasure, and pride. Self-regulation reacts to an impulse and subjects it to biblical truth. A lack of self-regulation, a lack of self-control yields to the impulse and does what it pleases. So you might think about it this way. Self-control is the capacity to direct your behavior, not have your behavior dictated by passion, pleasure, or pride. So it's the ability to direct, not to have your behavior dictated. Now, there are a number of terms that point to self-control in the scripture, and I won't cover all of them, but just let me just mention a few. Uh, they include the word temperate, sober, self-restrained, self-discipline, and also the idea of mastery over our desires or a surrender to God so that he uh, overcomes them. But basically, it's just free from excess. It's living a well-balanced life, self-possessed in all of your circumstances. And I believe there's a great need for self-control. I, I read this article that was written last year, uh, kind of mid-year last year. And it was entitled, Why People Are Acting So Weird. And here's some things that it pointed out in the, in the article. Bad behavior of all kinds, everything from rudeness and carelessness to physical violence has increased. Listen to some of these statistics. Car crash deaths were up 18.4% in 2021. It's like people forgot to drive, how to drive, and they got angrier as they did. Drug overdoses were up 20% in 2021. Unruly passenger reports were up significantly last year with almost 2,500 unruly passengers that were removed from planes and in um, discipline type situations. By the way, I was on a plane the other day and this guy got all fired up about the seat that he wanted to be in, but he wasn't in, but he hadn't paid for that fare class. And, and I'm talking, this is in coach. This is just like the difference between the seats that'll like, you know, jam your legs up in your face versus the ones that you can actually put your feet, feet down flat if you're the height I am anyway. And um, so we're not talking about like business or first or something. That's for, that's for, that's where the other half lives, I guess. I don't know. Uh, but at any rate, this guy gets all fired up about the seat that he thinks he should have. So he starts just straight in on the, on the uh, flight steward and she handled it so well. She was so kind and she seemed like she had diffused the situation. So he goes back the walk of shame and he sits down in his seat and 
Well, pretty soon he gets fired up again. He's back up in the front again. He's he's just he's fussing and just stirring up all the flight attendants. Well, well, then they got one of the I guess it was the co-captain. He comes back there and and they explain to him at this point after we've been sitting there for like 15 extra minutes because he's upset about the seat that he's in in a half-empty plane. And they explain to him he's going to get removed and so on and so forth. Well, let me just tell you, these people were were gentle. Because he had been off that flight 10 minutes before that had been up to me. I'd been like, sir, there's the door. We're about to leave. You said your piece. We're not going to agree with you. You either get off the plane or you sit down. You know, one or the other. That's what I would have told him. Uh, but at any rate, they let him stay on there. But I thought, like, did his mother not give him any training at home? Like, like why would he think that that would be appropriate to act the way they did about, a, about an airplane seat? Also in these statistics is that uh, attacks on healthcare workers have risen substantially. And those of you who are in the healthcare uh, business, you know that from your own experience, I'm certain. Uh, disruptive behavior by students is reportedly up over 20%, even higher in some districts. Uh, there is rage and frustration and stress that seems to be running throughout society. And self-control is much needed. It's not bringing ourselves under our own control, but as Christians, it's bringing ourselves under the power of Christ. So it includes our inner state, which is our mind and our emotions, and our outward actions, how we actually live toward other people. And it's been said that there are men who command armies but cannot command themselves. Uh, Biblical self-control goes to the deepest part of, of us, and that's the heart. So let me give you some biblical motivations for self-control. And I want to draw here from um, Titus 2 and verse 11. And uh, I'm going to read through verse 14. So Titus chapter 2 is where I'm going to begin in verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, instructing us to deny godlessness and worldly lust, and to live in a sensible, righteous, and godly way in the present age, while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Titus 2 and verse 14. He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to cleanse for himself a people for his own possession, eager to do good works. Now in Titus 2, there are two appearings of Christ. Two appearings of Christ. One is the appearing of grace The other is an appearing of glory. So first, there's grace, and then there's glory, and these two are inseparably linked. Grace appeared in the world around 2,000 years ago in Jesus, who came and lived and died, and he did so to redeem us from sin and to make us a holy people. But verses 12 and 14 are bookends to verse 13. And the middle of it is the blessed hope. So God's grace in salvation is a biblical motivation for self-control. God's grace in salvation is a biblical motivation for self-control. Note again what the scripture says. The grace of God trains us to reject godless ways and worldly desires and to live self-controlled. Here's how I think it works. When you recognize the full implications of salvation, then spiritual growth should follow. It should direct your life. 
So I think about Paul's discussion in Romans chapter 1 of the obedience of faith, for example. He lays out the case for salvation being uh, justification by grace through faith, and he builds on that, especially Romans 3, Romans 4. And he tells us that this is resulting in the obedience of faith. So, so here's the connection. When we are saved, when we're redeemed, when our lives have been changed by Jesus, if we've been genuinely saved, it should result in the obedience of faith. So God's grace in salvation is a biblical motivation for self-control. Self-control is part of living in the obedience of faith. And in a negative way, you reject godless ways and worldly desires. And in a positive way, you live self-controlled. And then the hope we have as we wait for the return of Jesus is a biblical motivation for self-control. If you know you are going to see Jesus Christ face to face, then your future hope should lead to a lifestyle of holiness. And I've said this many times through the years, but I want to say it again. One of the main purposes for prophecy is to motivate us to godly living. It's one of the main purposes of it. Now, yes, it's important how things are going to unfold and, and we can see signs of the times and we know some of the cornerstone things are going to happen as, as the end draws near. But the heart of it is so that we would be ready to meet Jesus and we won't be embarrassed. And biblical hope is a confident expectation in the good things that are to come. It's also referred to as the full assurance of hope. So God's grace began a good work in your life, and God's grace will complete the good work in your life. And the power to live a Christian life that pleases God comes from looking back at the grace that Jesus extended to you when he purchased your redemption. And it comes with a forward look toward the hope of the glory of God that will appear at the second coming. So you see the connection where we're leaving behind the godless ways, we're pressing on toward a likeness of Jesus. Hope is right in the middle of it. And as we wait for him, we long for the return of Jesus. And in this, we also recognize that there are consequences for a lack of self-control. There's consequences. You say, what are they? Well, what you sow, that you're also going to reap. Let me say it another way. Every decision has a consequence for good or bad. Everything you do, there, there's an action or a reaction. Galatians 6 and verse 7 says, Do not be deceived. God will not be mocked. For what a person sows, he also will reap. Now, there's a lot of examples that demonstrate a lack of self-control in the Bible. Adam and Eve succumbed to the temptation of eating the forbidden fruit in the garden. Noah succumbed to the temptation of alcohol and his own poor judgment after he'd just seen God do one of the most miraculous things that's ever been done outside of creation itself. And pretty soon he's laid up drunk. And how could that be? The Israelites suffered because of their lack of faith and their impatience in demanding a golden calf. King Saul gave in to the temptation of witchcraft and disobeyed God's commands. David committed adultery and was responsible for murder. Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, tragically allowed himself to be drawn away by foreign gods and pagan worship. 
The consequences of a lack of self-control can have lasting and damaging effects. And temptation attacks how? Through your old sinful desires. We still reside in the flesh. That's why the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life are, are so alluring. But what does the Holy Spirit do? The Holy Spirit gives you new desires. The Holy Spirit gives you new affections. And Peter says that the end of all things is at hand. 1 Peter 4 and verse 7. Therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. So we're talking about praying for self-control. Peter said if you, if you want your prayers not to be hindered, then be self-controlled and be sober-minded. True self-control is a gift that comes to us through the Holy Spirit. And I think that we also need to note that self-control is not a gift that we receive passively, but actively. And here's what I mean by that. We are not the source. We open the gift and we live it. But when we receive the grace of self-control, it means that we take it all the way in and we act on it. Like we're actively trusting the Lord to produce it in us. So what are some keys to self-control? And I'm going to give you these quickly. Some keys to self-control. This is not going to be on the screen, but I want, I want to mention them. Know the Word. How are you going to know what's right and wrong if you don't know the Word? You've got to know the Word. Be aware of the dangers of not following it. So that your conscience is sensitive to God. And pattern your life after other people who practice self-control. There's nothing that will draw you in quicker than being around and taking your direction from people that don't care what God has to say. Self-control works almost like a protective wall that will help prevent us from giving in to the desires of the flesh. Proverbs 25 and 28 says this, Like a city that is broken into and without walls is a man who has no control over his spirit. When you have self-control, you will be able to say no to the things that you know will harm you or others, and you'll be able to say yes to the things that you know are good for you and for others. You cannot control the circumstances in your life, but you can control how you respond to them. And I want to say this to you. We need self-control in our thoughts, our speech, our actions, and our reactions. Our thoughts our speech, our actions, and our reactions. And may our prayer be that we would cultivate self-control, even though it's not easy, that it's, but it is worth it. And may our prayer be, Holy Spirit, help us to grow in self-control as you subdue my desires and make me more like Jesus. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, they can be a reality. We've come to the end of our focus on the fruit of the Spirit as it relates to prayer, but we are daily in a pursuit of the likeness of Jesus. And I have a simple prayer for myself and I have a simple prayer for you as well. That each day you would progressively grow 
in your likeness of the Savior. That's discipleship. If Christianity is about life with God, discipleship is about growing in the likeness of Jesus. And it's a slow process sometimes, but it's a worthwhile one. And we ought not complicate it. We ought to get it from the Word. We ought to teach people what it means to be like the one who lived and died for them and now lives again and empowers them for that to be a reality in their lives. Pray with me, if you will. Father, we thank you tonight that we can be like Jesus, not because of our strength or our efforts, our power, but because of the Holy Spirit that lives in us, that we get to live life with you, Father, our creator, our redeemer, our sustainer. I pray that we would be more and more like Jesus, especially as it relates to gentleness and self-control. Show us the areas tonight where we uh, lack those things and help us to understand practically how we can improve in them so that our thoughts, our speech, our actions, and our reactions would bring honor and glory to you in all things. Lord, bless this weekend, especially as we look forward to this event with families and children in our community and different opportunities you're placing in front of us. Help us to be faithful. I pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.